probably maybe in March of 2012. I was having one of those weekly breakfasts with Bob Deffenbaugh and a handful of other guys. And Bob said, Jim, I got something I want you to do. And I knew it wasn't going to be working on a car. He knew me better than that. I can't do that. So I said, well, sure, Bob, what can I do? He said, well, I'd like you to speak at a conference in Colorado. I said, a conference in Colorado? Now, this was 2012. I said, well, what is it about? He said, well, it's a biblical eldership conference, and it's all about how elders should care for the flock and how we should take care of them. And I know this is a great passion of yours, and this is a lot of what you're concerned with, so I'd like you to speak there. I've told them that I want you to be on the agenda. I said, well, when is this conference, Bob? He said, well, it's six weeks from now. Oh. I said, well, you know, I'm in the middle of teaching a material that takes, you know, six months to go through. And I've been on this journey here and and I have six weeks to condense my thoughts. And how long do I have a day or two? How long do I have? He said, well, you get an hour. Oh. So I said, yes, because he's Bob. You know. I'm grateful for that because Bob knew that I've been on this journey. He's been part of it. And we've touched on my journey a little bit. Became a believer in 1970 in college at University of Texas. Gail, I know. God's grace. Amazing. <laughs> 1972, got married to Donna. That was the grace of God, too. Those of you who don't know, this was a big year when Donna passed away in 86. And then, of course... I didn't wait long until I married Karen. Bless you, Karen. Now, I met Jay Adams, not personally, but I met his material right after, I mean, right after he became saved. And we're going to learn more about Jay Adams and learn more about that from Steve tonight. He's prepared some slides to take us into more of this biblical counseling world. But my goodness, I was immersed into counseling stuff. I mean, I was immersed into everything you can possibly imagine. Learning pre-marriage counseling, reading books on it, doing some counseling, lay counseling, of course, we would call it that, myself, thinking about going to school to learn about it more. That was my passion. And then in 86... uh, That's when Donna died, and as I shared with you, that stimulated my whole thinking about one anothering, and I saw the body of Christ really living out what the body of Christ should be doing right here at Community Bible Chapel in caring for one another. Karen, by the grace of God, married me in 87, and then she entered into a lot of pre-marriage counseling. We did it together. More materials, more books, more time. And then both of us, in 1999, went to a Larry Crabb, Dwight Edwards conference. Dwight used to be the pastor at Grace Bible Church in College Station. They put on a four-day conference at Grace Bible here in Dallas. And Larry was introducing his book, Connecting, which was soon to be part of the curriculum at Dallas Seminary. 
And Dwight was going through Romans, talking about sanctification and a high end from Romans. And Larry was talking about sanctification within the body of Christ. And for the most part, Larry Crabb, we, he wept, we wept. This was an amazing event for both Karen and me. Because Crabb in his book, Connecting, far from a perfect book, by the way, but it was a bold book at the time. Because Larry Crabb at that time was the president of the American Association of Christian Counselors. The first and foremost integrationist group, if, if, as we understand the counseling world, we have secular counseling, which we'll talk about. You know, we didn't talk about that at all, but we have the integrationists and biblical counselors. And the AACC, 50,000 plus members, Larry was the president of, full of integration. But Larry's saying the church ought to be doing this. I don't know what's happened, but we are sending everything out to counselors, and that trend's got to stop. And, and that, that was right where I was. I didn't understand all of the ramifications yet, but I appreciated his courage in that book. And that book's still around, and I, I think it has value still. And Larry's a wonderful believer. We're going to be talking about a variety of believers tonight that are dear believers. But we may not agree with them on everything, and there's things I don't think you would agree with me on everything. Well, after that, in 2004, about five years later, a company, computer company I was with went under. It was the high-tech time, and we were a startup. had a lot of stock options. It didn't turn into very much. And so I wanted to do something. I thought, well, I'm going to go back to school, learn more about counseling stuff. So I went to Westminster at the time, and Redeemer, they became a part of it, but also met a man named Dr. Darren Martin, who, held, who had a counseling organization that had like 30 offices around Dallas. And Darren had been a Christian counselor integrationist, but he had encountered biblical counseling teaching from some groups out there and with good theology. And he started to repent of his Christian counseling psychotherapy stuff, told his staff, we're going to start doing this, not that. Many of his staff weren't even believers. Most of them left. But a lot of them stayed, and he was down to like five offices. I met him because he was teaching a class, Introduction to Biblical Counseling. I didn't even know what that was at, down at Westminster. So I went to the class, got to meet Darren. Wasn't doing much. Should have been doing more with work, but volunteered to help him. And so just to help him with business type things and learned a lot about the differences between these two groups and started to read Dave Pallison, Paul Tripp, Ed Welch articles from the Journal of Biblical Counseling. All of them was a journal that had been started by Jay Adams at Westminster. And so sound theology, good reformed doctrines of grace theology woven into this journal Keep that in mind because it's a journal. You know, it's full of education and learning, right? And yet, 
you know, it was such a breath of fresh air for where I had been over here. So then I started to teach some material. Well, after with Darren, a handful of us, Darren and myself and three or four others, started a group called the Association of Biblical Counselors. Now, that was a group that was an alternative to that other group Larry Crabb was president of. Instead of AACC, the American Association of Christian Counselors, we were the Association of Biblical Counselors. And we had Johnny Erickson Tata's endorsement, John MacArthur's endorsement, Bob's endorsement, Tommy Nelson's, many people's endorsement who are saying, yes, we need to move good theology and good biblical teaching into the counseling world. And I love that, and so that's where I was then. I knew Steve then, and Steve even then did a lot of work. Steve ministered to Darren, and, and uh, we got to know each other well. Steve would always ask questions that would push me a little further toward here, okay? But it's taken me a while. And so when I throw these things out to you as being on a journey, it's true. I mean, I'm still on a journey. This week I read some things. I'm going, huh, you know, I, I, I don't think that's right, Jim. Even in the class that I've taught so far. I've gone back with Steve on a couple things, and we said, you know, we need that's not quite exactly the way we wanted to say that. So I warned you. I mean, you're here still. I praise God for that. So this is much more beneficial for me maybe than for you. We got that started. Karen was wonderful. She helped the early meetings there, and now ABC has maybe 1,500, 2,000 members. It's not that big compared to 50,000 AACC. But it's still going. And out of that group, they published something called Equip to Counsel, which is where I met Renee and and started to teach this material. Now, this was developed by John Henderson at Denton Bible Church. And it's very comprehensive material. Some of you have been in it here. and, And so I started to teach that. I went through the training first, started to teach it, taught it seven or eight times. And every time I was teaching it, I was tweaking it a little bit. I was, not just by Steve, but by the Holy Spirit and others, I was getting tugged more here. Why, why am I still down here with language of counselor and counselee and some of this language that I kept trying to understand? And, and, and why are we not doing this more? And so that's how it brings me to 2012, and Bob invites me to this conference up in Colorado. So they said they were going to film it, and that we were to wear a tie. Bob didn't like that, but he took a tie. And we get up there, and I just cannot tell you how tired I was preparing for this. The night before, even the airplane flight over there, and it's a long story, but but I'm hustling to get my PowerPoints ready to squeeze everything in. I'm really tired. I get up the morning. We're staying with a wonderful fellow named Paul Varghese, who's hosted us in his home, and Paul, some of you know Paul, and hosted two or three of us there, and I get up that morning, and I've got my blue blazer and tie on, and I look really good. Why are you laughing? I mean, I did. I look good. 
And I look at Bob, and Bob doesn't have his tie on. I said, Bob, aren't you going to wear a tie? I don't know, Jim, if I'm going to wear a tie or not. You know, it's kind of, you know, there were about 130 pastors is who we were talking to, and it's Saturday, and I said, well, he's filming, and I, so I asked Paul, should I wear a tie? Well, I think you should, Jim. Okay. So I get to the conference that morning, and, and a lady, she was an older lady, much older than me, but she's one of those grandmotherly ladies who comes up to me, and I've got a name tag on, and she goes, Jim, nice to meet you. I'm so-and-so. And said, can I, your tie's a little bit, it needs to be fixed a little bit. Oh, thank you. So she t- got it straightened up. I said, thank you. I looked around. Nobody had a tie on. Nobody. Zero. None of the speakers. None of the attendees. So I was going to wear a tie. Karen picked it out. I had it on. So we get in the big room and we're having the introductory meeting for the big room in front of all the pastors. And and, and then Alex Strock, who many of you know, said, now, we're going to have all of the speakers give a brief introduction on what they're going to talk about today. I went, oh, I forgot all about that. In all my preparation for my hour, I'd forgotten about the fact that I had three minutes to introduce my topic. Oh, So I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Lord, help me. What am I going to say? And they're... Other speakers are going, and finally it's my turn. I stand up there, and, and I, I said, uh, well, you might notice that I have a tie on. Everybody laughs. I said, now, you might think that I have a tie because I'm a pastor somewhere, but I'm not a pastor. You might think I have a tie on because I'm a professor at a university. That's why I got invited to speak, but no. No, I'm not a professor at a university. Maybe you think I've got a tie on because I'm a licensed professional counselor and I'm really very much uh, equipped and certified. I'm a professional and that's why I have a tie. No, that's not why I have a tie on. You're wondering, why do I have a tie on? I said, well, Paul just said we might want to wear a tie. So I really, basically, I'm just a Christian. But, but I'm a Christian with a tie. Well, they all laughed. And for the whole day, people would come up to me with the tie on. Said, you're just that Christian guy with a tie. Well, what I said after that, I said, I hope that's enough for you to listen to me. I hope that the fact that I'm not a pastor. In fact, I said, I'm not even an elder at a church. And this was an elders meeting. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not a certified counselor. I'm not a professor at a university. I don't teach at a seminary. I'm just a Christian with a tie. Is that enough? And everybody liked that. And Well, the conference was a rousing success, not because of me. It was a success because I was overwhelmed with the number of people that came up and said, Jim, we need help in this area. We're overwhelmed with these trials and difficulties, these painful situations that we've talked about. We're overwhelmed with it. And I told you one of the men, I think I mentioned this earlier, who said he went to Denver Seminary and, um, 
and I had that slide on Denver. I think I have it coming up again. But he went to Denver Seminary and he said, you know, this is a big problem at our, at our seminary and nobody understands it. And I had a slide even back then on Denver Seminary. So that was very validating. I'm grateful for Bob on that. And during that whole approach, you know, I, my whole goal was to introduce these counseling areas to them just to make them aware that there's battleground out there and that, that all these churches are fighting these things. And so we've, we've started to do that. And we've started to do that a couple weeks ago when we got into this issue of truth as it relates to the integrationist. And there, there are two anchors I think two primary distinctives of the integrationists and Christian counselors. I'm going to give you the second one tonight. We'll review this one shortly again, just because it's important. It's, it's, a, it's more important than this one. Much more important than this one. And it's so important, and, and nobody's writing about it. I, I think it's critical. You'll see why in a minute when I read you a couple of quotes. And then Steve's going to walk us through some of this tonight. Because he's even more passionate. Frankly, I'm. I love these guys. Okay, I've had huge influence, and Steve loves a lot of their teaching too. But, but I still struggle. I mean, I'm still, you know, I still get caught up in it, and I and I and I'm and I think there's great material there. There's great helpful material, which we can talk about even more. But for this class, we've got to understand what some issues are to be discerning here and where its roots came from. And I think that is critical before we move into next week, which I can't wait to get to. It's just, um, but, but we had to do all this before we get here. And in fact, Hampton said last week, he said how glad he was that we did one and two before we got here because it just makes this make more sense. So I think, I think when you see it all together, it's going to make sense as a package. But that will be up to you to decide in the Holy Spirit. So, all truth is God's truth. Just a couple slides to remind you of what we talked about two weeks ago. This idea that comes from the integrationists that all truth is God's truth. It's tied to additional truth that's tied to investigations and scientific studies that, that the integrationists say are tied to general revelation. And so we build a matrix and we try to show how science and the studies here are helpful. They're, they're great. They are about good things. But it's not the same truth as biblical truth that's revealed, it's revelation. It is secular truth. And, and that truth, because of the differences between what general revelation is, you can't take that truth and put it under the umbrella of general revelation. It doesn't fit. Now, the integrationists say it fits. Let me give you a quote. From Larry Crabb, whom I love. All truth is certainly God's truth. The doctrine of general revelation provides warrant for going beyond the propositional revelation of Scripture into the secular world of scientific study 
expecting to find true and usable concepts. It's just, just wrong. But he's a brother. And that's a way that the integrationists justify charging 120 an hour in a counseling setting. Bruce Naramore, many of you have heard of him. I'm going to read one more quote. The evangelical church has a great opportunity to combine the special revelation of God's word with the general revelation studied by the psychological sciences and professions. The end result of this integration can be a broader and deeper view of human life. I hear that all the time. What are you saying, Jim? Are you, are you saying this has no value, they'll say? I said, I didn't say that. Two plus two has a lot of value. You can learn a lot from the study of psychology. It can be helpful. Just don't call it revelation from God. Don't put it over here. And don't use it as an excuse to charge $120 an hour. Don't do that. You can do whatever else you want. You can become a PhD in psychology and teach at a school. I don't have any problem with that. I don't even have, well, I won't go too far down there. So, any questions on that? Again, this is, yes. Mm. No, that, that's right. And, and, and yet, I, I agree with everything you said, Robert. The, the, but truth around this area, like, it's, we just need dialogue on these things. Many, I believe, many even Christian integrationists who would be presented with these, they, they would struggle with trying to defend it. And those who aren't making a living at it maybe would be more open. But remember, it's a huge profession, a lot of money being made here. And, um, and we're taking on something that is integrated into every church. John Piper's church, professional counselors on staff. R.C. Sproul's church, professional counselors on staff, integrationists. John MacArthur's church, they're everywhere. Nobody even asks questions about it. This is not a popular viewpoint. So what's the second item? Thank you, Robert. Well, the second item that I think is important has to do with a view of man, man's anthropology. The person has three substances. Now, that's known as trichotomy or tripartite or dichotomy. Body, soul, and spirit. Three distinct parts of man. A common view. Many hold it. It's, it's supported by a couple scriptures. Um, many don't hold it. It's, it's not as it's, it's a fairly new view in terms of new, you know, new in the last 100 to 200 years. Um, the dichotomous view as an inner man and outer man, more complexity of the inner man, certainly body, soul, and spirit, and mind, and conscience, and will. And so you have, you'll have, you have different words there. It's a more complex. The, so tonight I'm not really trying to make you a dichotomist if you're a trichotomist. It doesn't, that isn't the point. The point tonight with the next couple slides is for you to understand how the integrationists use trichotomy. The tripartite or trichotomy view of the person was the first seemingly biblical category asked to carry the freight of psychological needs. 
In essence, this view states that the whole person consists of three parts or substances, the body, soul, and spirit. The popular thought is that the physical body has physical needs, the soul has psychological needs, and the spirit has spiritual needs. Accordingly, the person with physical needs goes to a physician, the person with psychological needs goes to a psychologist, and the person with spiritual needs goes to a pastor. These three categories offer a hand-in-glove fit with the popular definitions of needs. Remember, we talked about needs theories that, you know, that are probably, you know, and even, even in a lot of the good biblical counseling material, it's about meeting needs. Is that what God's primary goal in our life is? No. Does he promise to meet our basis? Sure. But meeting needs compared to conforming us to be like Christ for his glory, those are two different things, aren't they? And we spend all this time down in needs. Now, where did this come from and how, how is this used? Frank Menrith, who was taught at Dallas Seminary for years, So this is what Frank said in his book, Christian Psychiatry. In defending their support of trichotomy, the author stated, however, we prefer to consider it as separate because of Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 5. And there's a verse or two that have just those three. I understand that. I'm not here to debate that tonight. And also, because from a psychological view, this division just makes sense. That doesn't sound like exegesis, does it? No. Psychologically speaking, based on my knowledge of psychology, this three-part distinct makes sense. It explains why Christians have emotional problems. Now, the trichotomist that I know, and at least one very sweet one in this room, and others, like pastor at our church, they don't view trichotomy the way Frank Minrith does. They just view it as, you know, the man's whole and there's three parts. The integrationists, though, they view it, yes, you have spiritual needs, you need to go see a pastor. We're all in favor of the scriptures address your spiritual needs. But those emotional, psychological needs... I mean, that's what we specialize on. And the Bible doesn't deal with all of that stuff. Praise God for the study of psychology that we can deal and bring some additional truth alongside what is obviously lacking in God's word. Now, the trichotomists I know that are strong believers, they don't apply their trichotomy that way. You understand what I'm saying? But you can see how easily trichotomy could fit if you needed a view of man's anthropology that would fit into this. And where did Minrith and Meyer and the trichotomists get this? Well, does this look familiar? Straight from their book, Freud's Superego, Ego, and Id, Three-Part Division of Man. And so... Let's, based on our knowledge of what is obviously true, quote, 
there must be support biblically for a three-part man, and voila, well, we have a trichotomy view, and it makes sense. Now, the only reason I mention this tonight, if I should put uh, trichotomy or anthropology, I need to get my marker. Hang in there. The only reason I mention this is, is to have you be aware when you're reading certain materials. For example, one of the very best books I've read on depression in, in, in some ways, that's something else worth talking about. We'll get into that here in another couple of weeks, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a trichotomist. And early on in his book, he refers to some psychological theories as he's laying it all out. And, and so if you're not aware that, that you're going to see that in materials, it just, I just want you to be aware that that's a distinctive here. These guys are almost all dichotomist. And so much of their material is good because it views man's Emotions and spiritual life is all integrated as a whole person. And therefore, that's one of the distinctive differences between biblical counselors and, quote, Christian integrationists. And there's others. Make sense? Questions on that? No, it's not the fundamental difference between a biblical counselor and a Christian counselor. Um, It's one of the differences. It's... There's a bunch of differences between the two. Um, you know, there, I think in general that biblical counselors are much more Christ-centered with their counseling. I think they're much more, they're closer to believing in sufficiency. They understand the depravity of man better. Um, they see the story of redemption a little bit more clearly. Um, I think they're a little clearer on the gospel Okay, I mean, there's a lot of theological. I, I think what biblical counselors bring to the counseling world in general is good theology, not perfect theology. And not all of them apply their theology because, because they're in this world again. And you just, you just can't help it. If you're immersed into the counseling world, some of that stuff's just going to come out. But it is, um, they... There's lots of really good materials. For example, on the boundaries that we talked about earlier, um, Ed Welch has written some excellent material trying to explain how boundaries, and it's extremely popular in every evangelical church, it seems like, how boundaries is built on an integrationist model, and, and he, he takes it apart and, and biblically does a really good job. It's helpful when you have friends that are reading books and you're, and you're looking for material to say, well, you know, I don't know that that's really sound or not. And so it's good to have a book like that. And, and so there's lots of good material here. And I've referenced their articles and, and all. But again, as time's gone on, I've just seen that as much as I love these guys and as much as I'm influenced by them, we need discernment as well, even looking at their material. It's easier now for me to see, oh, okay, that's... Tim LaHaye, Four Spiritual Temperaments of Men. Okay, that's not good. Okay, It's not so easy, Steve knows, because he's constantly nurturing me along. Not so easy for me to read something by one of these guys and to go, oh, yeah. I see how that's 
sort of still got some of that psycho stuff stuck all over it because they're just so immersed into it, and it's okay. I mean, they're believers, and all of, you know, most of these people are wonderful believers that we would enjoy having fellowship with. But it's a big distinctive between the two. Any other questions? Because I'm about to turn it over to my dear brother. Yeah. Well, you would agree with me then, Stan, and that is the right place to be. <laughs> that is a dichotomist. You're a two-person, an inner man and an outer man. And that was that is, within the Reformed world, it's pretty common. Um, it was... I don't know, Steve, is we, I'm not sure when trichotomy being distinctly three parts hit the evangelical world. I know it's, it's a view at Dallas Seminary back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I asked one of the men from DTS last year if this was still a discussed item. And um, he said, no, nobody even talks about it. He, he, this was a guy named Brian Webster who teaches Old Testament down there. He said, said frankly, I'm kind of a... Um, a decachotomy guy. There's ten parts of the, you know, I mean, it, it's complex. The inner man's complex. And so, so I, I don't think, but within the counseling world, my point is, it, it's a big deal still. Okay? Well, I believe my friend Steve Terrell is up. Okay. Um, I don't know where I sit as far as a tear with Jim. I think I'm a brother without a tie. On Atkins, overweight, <laughs> a lot of distinguishing marks about me that are blemishes. Um, and, you know, I caught myself, I may stumble a lot with you guys, so you're going to have to be patient, okay? I've, I don't know what's happening over my life, but over the last 15 years, you know, sometimes I even seem really incoherent. A lot of times I get way ahead of myself and Jim will look at me and he'll have this gaze look and he'll go, Stevie, like, didn't you listen to me? And you know what it is? I don't know if you guys have had this if you've gotten older. It's like your brain starts splitting off into three different streams because you're, I don't know if, I have eight kids. I don't know if it's you're trying to find the fastest result, the right result, but you end up going down all three and then you realize, oh, good, that's the right answer. And then you say something like 1942, I don't know. Something crazy that Jim and everyone else thinks is totally insane. And then you finally back up and you explain it and you get there. And he goes, now I get it. So don't be surprised if that happens tonight and you have to say, put on the brakes. You're a potato head. I don't get this. So in fact, I can say that. Jim knows I use it all the time. I'm a man. With, I'm a Christian. With, as a, I'm a potato head Christian. I'm starting a new venue. Um, okay. So... By the way, Steve, that was yeah. a great slide. A potato. <laughs> That's true. I'll put one of those big potatoes. Um, I was in a ministry right out of college called National Encounter with Christ. I was there for 16 years. And um, I, I guess you'd say I was the second guy in charge or whatever, but we had so much fun. It was so different than normal life. Um, it was like a campus crusade for Christ, but the junior college campuses. And what's great about it is you've got all these kids who are Lolo heads. They don't know what they want to do. They don't know what their major is. So it's easy to witness to them. And we would, we did literally, we'd come straight up to people and say, um, my name is Steve. I have this booklet based on two assumptions. 
One's the Bible is the word of God, and the other is Jesus is the son of God. And by knowing him, you can have a personal relationship with God. Would you like to listen? No, 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 no. And then, boom, every now and then you get a yes. And when you get a yes, it's so cool because you want to find out if the Holy Spirit is really impacting the gospel. And so you'll find you're a saving aroma. He'll either reject it, hate it, you know, want you to leave. But something happens really wonderful every now and then as you're witnessing um, they don't reject. They, they listen more intently. And we were always okay with cold turkey evangelism because, because they say you have to earn the right to be heard. You know, they say all these different things, and they were mad. We were winning people to Christ, and it was absolutely wonderful. It was probably one of the highlights of my life was being in that organization. Well, uh, I got to know Jay there. Um, he came with us with our first trip in Europe. Subsequently, he came with us on two other trips, Jay Adams, in um, China. And he's like 6'3 or 6'4, real tall guy. He's got this huge beard that looks like Stonewall Jackson. And he, everyone avoids him because he fights, or rather he, I don't know if I want to say he's abrasive. He's, he's really a straight shooter. And... And I love to talk to him because if I'm a potato head, I already knew I was, so who cares? I have nothing to lose, right? But all these other Berkeley grads and other guys were afraid to talk to Jay. But we'd have fun. Here's the problem. I was a potato head then, too. So I have nothing that I can relate to now. And Jay is still a friend. He's a very nice guy, but my beliefs have flip-flopped. They've been so different from what I held to back in those times. So... I can't speak too much to Jay now because we've had so much distance, but I will tell you this. The third time we went, he was so affected, I think, by what was happening in his ministry that he said, I'm going to go back to the pastorate. Now, I thought that was telling, right? Because obviously what graded on him was the difference between the professionalism that you have to pull in as your baggage um, under the auspices of a counselor versus what you can be as a pastor. And I don't mean just professionalism. I've got to be careful not to get off too much. But what it really means to be able to articulate the word of God within that sphere as over against having to harmonize it with all these other issues in a secular world and a secular society. And so Jay, I'm assuming, was able to see a better road for his ministry by junking some of the baggage and going straight into um, back into the pastorate. Uh, I don't know what happened. I didn't keep up with him after that. But, you know, Darren told me I interviewed Jay and others say I got to meet Jay. And, um, and to Jim's point, I cross swords with some of these guys. And you'll have to forgive me. I do um, inappropriately distance myself from these. And these are men of God that even the Christian integrationists are probably very strong advocates of our Lord. And I think that Satan can really put a division between us if we're not careful. And i got to say that, Jim knows, because he's always hitting me hard on this, saying, these are believers, blah, 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 blah. And I know he's right, but it's easy to let some of these issues um, be divisive. So I want you to know tonight, I'm not trying to be divisive. Um, okay, well, anyway. Um, but I will, okay, so let me start this way. 
Having said that, and that's a good way of uh, starting this, um, we do have tensions as believers. We do have paradoxes that we look at when we look at the scriptures. And going through the Bible is not always easy in the sense that what you, you remember when you were first a Christian, how wonderful it was. And yet some of the verses that you remembered and memorized, they change in your thinking as you grow in grace and grow in Christ. Now, this is important, and I'll explain why. As a, a prelude to this, I want to say, the scriptures are our guide, and they have the exact body of information we need to live our lives post-fall. In other words, of course, after Adam sinned, with others, our families, and most importantly, they let us know how our God wants us to relate to him. Now, that's, that's big, because we have a tendency to be very practical, pragmatic, and we, we're... Whether we realize it or not, we, we handle all our problems in a very secular, worldly way. And so it's very easy to jettison um, the role that we have as children of God, as his sons and daughters, for the sake of expediency and the fa- for the sake of getting results, for the sake of getting um, out of whatever pain we have in our wilderness experience. And then I love this verse from Second Peter, and I'll read it just because it's so applicable. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So, The Bible's already setting a framework for us. It's already stating that if you're in him, you have everything you need. Okay, so that being said, um, this next paragraph is very close to what I was just saying. We don't dwell all the time or meditate in God's word, so we overlook its fuller meaning, sometimes difficult explanations, redemptive purposes that are meant to be the means for our growth, maturity, and perseverance as we wait on the Lord. Now, I ramrodded through that, but I'm getting and moving to a point on where I see some of the tension between both integrationists and biblical counselors that is very subtle, very easy to miss, very easy to overlook, okay? So to prove this out, even Jesus looked at Nicodemus in John 3 and says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? In other words, fundamentally... The Lord is saying, the scriptures have it all. If you read the scriptures, if you really ask for the Holy Spirit's opening your heart, you know, technically we're responsible. We could understand any and everything that applies to our lives as believers. And then this one from Paul. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. This, I'm sorry, this is after his conversion. He goes, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia. Now, Dr. Johnson, some people say two to five years. Johnson told me he thinks it was up to, I'm sorry, Dr. Johnson, formerly the pastor of Believer's Chapel, head of systematic theology at Dallas Seminary. He said, I believe he could have been there as much as 12 years. Think about that. All that studying under Gamaliel, and he's off for 12 years reorienting himself to all these truths that he realized were totally upside down. So this idea that we should be wrestling 
in dealing with the scriptures in a comprehensive manner. It's not small as we approach ideas of counseling. Um, so I said, we need to hold fast and allow the scriptures to define their own terms, which you were about to get into. We need to let them guide and direct our lives, especially, and here's a big one, when this expediency wants to hit you, under the severe, pre- severe pressures of life, knowing our Lord is intimately aware of all the tribulations we enter into. Now, now we're going to get into some of these bigger bullets. And If we become discontent and if we bail on these ideas and we open the door and say, you know, Bob may have great ideas or our elder might have value, but they weren't trained in, in adaptive behavior. They weren't tra- trained in any of these ideas with psychoanalysis or therapy. Um, but when we go down those roads, we're opening the door to an overdependence on knowledge found in the natural order at the expense of God's design and provision in his word. So when Jim says on the other slide, we're not saying that they don't have value, that's a big statement, but what's so big about it is, well then, and someone should pick this up, what is the value? I mean, I'm fairly serious. What is the value? And I'll show you why when I bring that up. And I'm not saying you're wrong on that. I'm just saying that's a big one. So then let's define that. What is its value? The second is, and I really believe this, we alter our identity by merging the answers of this present age to blend better with the scriptures so we can find contentment. We swap out providence, sin, personal responsibility, and work off new terms like addiction, health, self-esteem disorders. So, you know, we don't like where we are. We don't want the answer our pastor is going to give us. So we do this subtle swap of ideas. And before you know it, yeah, we're feeling a lot better now, but we're feeling a lot better. We've altered the landscape of our own belief system. So if you remember that first slide, you in essence change the way you look at your relationship to God when you go down that road. And then lastly, and I think this is a huge one that no one talks about, um, medication becomes a solution. It's about fixing issues now, and I want expected outcomes. And so once you go down these roads, there's a whole litany of other baggage that now you embrace that comes with it. It is also common that we constantly and I said this earlier, superimpose our postmodern culture and baggage into word usage, even though clearly Scripture has different meanings and purposes. And that's getting to the point I want to go into now, which is one critical error Christian and biblical counselors fall into comes when they don't distinguish sufficiently Greek and Hebrew meanings in the way the writers intended. Okay, so now we're about to get there. Um, so I, what I did is I flipped it and said, so let's, let's create a schism here. Let's, let's really go into and say, well, what is the issue that's so different? What exactly is the purpose of psychotherapy? What is mental health? George Valiant defines mental health in terms of adaption, I'm sorry, adaptation to problems, which he distinguishes from adjustment. And hence, he sees forms of mental illness as forms of failure to adapt. In other words, instead of adjusting, you need to be more proactive and be able to adapt to those situations as they hit you. But watch what where we go. Because I read some other stuff that this isn't necessarily current. But 
Psychologists distinguish between people who are normal and those who are abnormal. But this PhD, um, Deneen, although critical of the excess of the psychology industry, she's provided a list from the American Psychological Association of various empirically validated treatments. And I'll look at the, her list. So this is, if you really want to go down the road and be consistent, this is part of the baggage you're going to have to adapt, right? I don't know if I should have this in the Bible church, but we're going with it. Behavior therapy for headache, irritable bowel syndrome, female orgasmic dysfunction, male erectile dysfunction, insurances, and encopresis. I know, I know. No blue pills in my... Uh... Anyway, cognitive behavior therapy for chronic pain, panic disorders, depression, and generalized anxiety. Exposure treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder and phobias, family treatment programs for schizophrenia, systematic desensitization for simple phobia. Now, all I'm trying to do is show you this is really um, some of the criteria behaviorists, psychologists have to embrace that you end up having to defend once you open those doors to go down those roads. Now, this is a tough one, and um, I'm giving you a Christian and biblical counseling example, and I want to see if you can figure out what's wrong with this picture. I am deeply persuaded that the foundation for people-transforming ministry is not theology, it's love. Without love, our theology is a boat without oars. Paul Tripp. So what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? It's stripping God of his holiness. Well, fundamentally, that's right. You're, you're actually, and this is where Dr. Johnson would have had exception if he was alive, and that's true. But if you look at the Bible or the definition, now this is a human, I looked it up today, okay? I went online. Theology, and in fact, is the study of the nature of God. Theo means God. The suffix iology, the study of. So, I don't know what's wrong with that. I don't know. Let me go back. Okay, I don't know why you would put a break between sound theology and love. Now, so how do scriptures define themselves? Look at this. So in 1 John it says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Okay. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So, being a Christian and having sound theology is one and the same. In fact, if anything, God's defining what love really is. Um, I love this one. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So, I can't even, you know, everyone else can manufacture your relationship to your mother or um, problems you have when you were in junior high or your first girlfriend broke up to you or your first boyfriend. But the truth is we can't manufacture what happens in the heart as believers and from the regeneration process. And yet that's the goal of our instruction as Christians to 
bring people to a position of real what it means to be loving in Christ with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I bring this verse in only because this has become more critical for all of us. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handing the word of truth. So all I'm trying to say to you is pragmatism and expedience is part of the problem because we want answers now. You know, my husband's horrible to me or, you know, my wife, it won't be intimate or my kids are driving me nuts or Johnny's coming home from school all the time because he won't pay attention. And we, we just want results. So we gravitate to those things that'll, that will end the problem that we're experiencing in the moment. So now here we get to some of the questions that I would like to say. If we open that door, let's talk about it. So I'm posing a question. Is today's Christian and biblical counseling and its demonstration and role in the church, what God had in mind as an outworking of Romans 15, 14. Oh, I probably should go ahead and, yeah, there's, we'll use that one. Don't you like Lucy? Now, here's Jay's verse. As far as I'm concerned about you, my brothers, I'm convinced that you especially are abounding in the highest goodness, richly supplied with perfect knowledge and competent to counsel one another. Does anyone have, a, can someone else look at Romans 15, 14? You got it? Okay. Does anyone have uh, ASV or New American Standard? John always, Hannah always tells me to use ASV. Okay. That's closer to um, the New American. Because what Jay leans on a lot are two words. Counsel for admonish. And able for competency. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but let, let me show you some real. These, I know these personally. This, this is from men that have talked to me. So part of the problem, I've had a biblical counselor say to me, Steve, if I cut off medication or Abilify, you don't know how instrumental that is to handle same-sex attraction and dealing with homosexuality. Another gentleman I know said, my dad was so afraid from not having assurance of salvation, we put him on meds, <laughs> and now he's growing more in grace and sanctification than ever. I mean, do you guys realize what, what this is all saying? That, in other words, in Jesus' time, I don't even know how you would apply it then. I mean, I guess the Holy Spirit was more powerful then. I don't know. Or, you know, the pharmaceutical companies hadn't come out. I'll go ahead and say it, even though Virginia's my daughter, and I didn't cross swords with her. She's my own daughter, and she was up at UNT and going to Denton Bible. And a biblical counselor said to her, because she was in fear and worrying, not unlike this guy, and she recommended her to get extra, not over-the-counter, but medication to help her sleep so she can deal with her, her fear and her anxiety. And, of course, we've all heard people with grief counseling that would probably say, at least in their hearts, why would I go to a pastor or a believing friend? I need therapy. You know, I need to deal with this. These guys can't help me. They're going to want me to pray or something. So, does anyone have any questions up to this point? Are we okay? So, let's go into that verse. And here's what the problem is. Um, I hope you can read this, but I'd like to see if any of you could, can 
bring out a couple of issues. This is in Jay's preface, 1970, the first two paragraphs of his book. In fact, he sets up the whole stage for the rest of the book. Uh, I learned little about counseling and seminary, so I began with virtually no knowledge of what to do. Soon I was in difficulty. Early in my first pastorate, following an evening service, a man lingered after everyone else had left. I chatted with him awkwardly, wondering what he wanted. He broke into tears but could not speak. I simply did not know what to do. I was helpless. He went home that night without unburdening his heart or receiving any genuine help from his pastor. Less than one month later, he died. I now suspect that his doctor told him of his impending death and that he had come for counsel, but I failed him. That night I asked God to help me to become an effective counselor. Does anyone see any problems with... This is the premise of the movement. I mean, I'll take anything. So you're... Okay, so go ahead and elaborate on that then. How, what, what do you mean? Uh, he lingered. That's yeah, right. Yeah. He stuck uh, around. And so just... So, okay, so what you're saying and what you're saying, look at your first six, seven words. I learned little about counseling in seminary. So I began with virtually no knowledge of what to do. Isn't that kind of like the big issue? I mean, look what, yeah, look what he's doing. Right. See what, what you're saying when you do that, though? Look how you're parceling out what a pastor is by our 21st century. It's someone who gives sermons, who study. I mean, in other words, the institutions, the academics, the modeling we approach already doesn't talk to all of us as what it means to be in Christ. We categorize ourselves by positions, knowledge base, degrees, certification. And if you don't have the appropriate, you send them to the right person. But Fundamentally, we just read that verse from Second Peter. Not only do we have God's word, but he's already changed our heart. I, I don't see what's so complicated about this. And Jay, he, you know, he's a really bright guy. He went to John Hopkins. He knows better. But look at how easy it is to subtly make these disagreements in your head because you assume... I mean, think of it. As a believer, I'm not equipped, I'm not able, and we'll get into that word unable, to handle any of these ideas because I need to be trained. I need to have something that I currently don't have. I, I mean, think of it. He's basically saying fundamentally in Christ as a result of knowing what it means to be forgiven of my sins, I can't have an understanding of compassion. You know, I don't, that wouldn't resonate with me as a believer. Anyway, there's a whole host of other issues, but these are some of the ones that have actually spawned this movement and created such, you know, two different worlds. I mean, if you go to DTS's department now, did you know hardly anyone wants a THM? They all want to be counselors. Even to Jim's point about outsourcing, it's gotten so bad that even the pastors discount themselves now. <laughs> I better be careful how I say things. There are some men that will say, do you know any grief counselors? Do you know any of these kind?" And they actually nullify 
their ability to, in any way, shape, or form, impact a believer with issues. I'll try to go real fast. So, here's Miriam Webster's um, definition: professional guidance of the individual by using, I'm sorry, utilizing psychological methods, especially in collecting case history data, using various techniques of the personal interview and testing interests and aptitude. So this, this I'm trying to show what a divergence, what a brokenness when you go down these two roads. You're laughing. You didn't memorize that, did you? <laughs> okay, and so now, and I can very quickly, because I know we're so far beyond this, this got me so upset and so frustrated that a very dear friend of mine, Paul, I'm going to hand these to you. And if you could pass those behind you. I um, had a dear friend of mine at Dallas, Kent Ron, who was a THM student. And he was going also later for his PhD. And, um, and you'll love this. You know, take this so you can read it later. But I'm going to give you just five notes real quick on this. Fundamentally, what Jay has done is he's taken the normative reading of God's word where it says um, able and counsel and he's superimposed, I'm sorry, able and, counsel. No, no, it's um, admonish, admonish and able. And he's, remember I said he's superimposed a worldview of counseling on it when it's not there. I even looked it up. Greeting each other with a brotherly kiss is mentioned almost as many, if not more, than admonishing. So it's kind of like we're, we're choosing ideas that the scriptures already discuss, and we're substituting it so we can, like Jim was saying earlier, we can make up for deficiencies that we think are, the Bible just doesn't cover. So if you go to page two, I'm going to just read three excerpts. Um, it's the, if you start from the top, it's the one, two, three, four, the sixth bullet down. Because you'll notice, basically, this study Kenton put together is about every word and verb and noun form of the word counsel and counseling in the Old and New Testament by Greek and Hebrew. That's why you'll love this. And you can see, for example, the first three, it's the activity of giving, receiving counsel within relationships, father-in-law to son-in-law, wife to husband, friend to friend, advisor to king. The third bullet, a large percentage of the time counseling occurs between a king and his royal advisor. The predominant type of counselor in the Old Testament is a political or military advisor. And then that Sixth bullet down, the content of the counseling rarely deals with moral or spiritual healing. Most references to counseling are secular in nature, i.e. political or military. This is certainly true when humans are counseling humans, but when God is counseling humans, the reverse is probably true. God's counsel to humans is usually moral and spiritual rather than secular. But of course, this is God, and he's not, he knows what happened between you and your mom. Then, um... This is a big one. It's your second bullet. He starts going into the New Testament, and this is just before he goes into all the word usages from page, I think it's 5 through 13. He says, It's remarkable that the New Testament assigns little specific place to the wisdom tradition of Israel or to wise counselors. This is page 4, second bullet. 
right under uh, what does the New Testament say so little about counseling. This comment is based on the fact that only about 15% of the references to counseling occur in the New Testament. Approximately 30 compared to 200 in the Old Testament. Why is this? So if, if counseling is so critical, and if we're all supposed to be counselors, how can we have such a flip-flop here? Then I'm going to go to page 14, dealing with boule. This is the main word that's used when we come into the 12 occurrences in the New Testament. 14, it's the under the heading New Testament. There's three bullets. Paul informed the Ephesian elders. He proclaimed to them the whole counsel of God. I mean, again, nothing with therapy, nothing with psychoanalysis. Um, in Ephesians 1.11, this is according to the counsel of his will. Or, you know, I, we don't have time to look it up, but if you look at it, it'll say purposes. And then, of course, God's purpose counsel is immutable. And then I'm going to close with 15. At the very top it says, Note that boule is used mostly of the divine counsel in the New Testament. And then, of course, he goes on to the word paraclete. So even part of the idea of counselor is more dealing with mediator, intercessor, and helper or advocate. You know, like a, a lawyer, he's my advocate, he's my counselor. So what I'm trying to say to all of us here is this. You know, the Bible addresses counseling. It, it addresses it. And I didn't go into it not tonight, but um, Jay's word able, when you go through Strong's Concordance, there's over 200 instances, but they're not talking about training, certification, or instruction. It's all about who Christ was as the Son of God, who we are as his children. In other words, it was already ingrained in the change in who we become as believers as over against instruction you need for a deficiency that you don't have. So I know a lot of people feel they need cliff notes or want to say, well, how do I handle people or how do I deal with these problems? But all I'm saying to you is the scriptures are telling us they're sufficient. The scriptures are using counsel in such a way that it shows us we don't have deficiencies unless you're looking for a military advisor. I won't go there. And then the idea, what I would really say is go through the word choices you use and the way people present it and approach it and dig into God's word and see if in point of fact what they're filtering through their lens when they're using these terms and then they give you a verse in the Bible. Go back and see if the Bible is really taking your baggage and utilizing it in that way. And you'll find 99 times out of 100, they're going to have problems because it generally doesn't. All right, Jim, go ahead. I'm sorry it took so long, guys. I remember when Steve, Steve graciously paid Kenton to do the study. If you notice, it was 2004 on the right. handout. And seminary student, give him some extra money to do it. And, and when he got done with the study, wow. I mean, what, what we had discovered is that the biblical counselors who believe in sufficiency, who, who really taught me wonderfully on the integrationists, 
they themselves weren't even using the word, the biblical word counsel, biblically. You see what we're saying? Now, you may think that's no big deal, but it is. When we start talking about this, the one anothering world, the body of Christ world, how many of you think, and I mean, I remember in a small group with a, a, some people from CBC, so they said, well, I, look at, I hope you're not going to train us to be counselors because, you know, that's really, that requires special training. I mean, that's, well, that, because that's the way the world understands it. I remember in a class, one of my first equipped to counsel classes, it was at a Baptist church out in the mid-cities. I'm sitting next to a lady, wonderful teacher going on. He said, Jim, she said, I'm never going to learn how to do this counseling stuff. I mean, all I know how to do is pray with people. And I'm thinking, well, that's great. But you see, when you take a word counsel that at its fundamental meanings, it's, it's advisor. It has to do with wisdom and making decisions. The biblical word counsel never has to do anything with anxiety or soul care kinds of things. I don't even like that term, soul care. Steve taught me to not like that too. But these, these things that go on that are psychologically oriented counseling kinds of issues. The biblical word counsel never deals with that. Oh, by the way, guess what does? A bunch of other scripture. All these one another in verses. Exhort one another. Admonish one another, which Jay used to call counsel. Encourage one another. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. Seventy some plus one another in verses. Pray for one another. By the way, as believers, can't we do that? We can do all of that because it's in the Word of God. Yes. Exactly right. When people have... You know, in the classes, you were in one, and others, that, as they get exposed to this, they go, oh, I just never thought about it. I've mentioned this one item when I talk to pastors. Typically, if I have five minutes with somebody as a pastor in an elevator, you know, and he said, what do you like? You know, what's going on, Jim? And I say, well, you know, have you ever thought? It's interesting about the word counsel, about all the counseling that's going on. And I'll mention this. Yeah, that's that. Yes. But, but nevertheless, the point, I think, and I agree, Steve, with that, but what Bernie's saying, too, is that, is, and this is a problem, I don't know of many people who are in the professional counseling world who are trying to get the church engaged in counseling, but there's a big movement now in the biblical counseling world to try to get the church to, to do this, the equipped to counsel material at where Renee goes, at the village and other churches are all about biblical counseling and getting biblical counseling going and biblical counseling materials, you see. And so what they're saying is is they're going to grab a lot of that stuff. And, 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 and the problem that we have, this is, so the first, as I finish tonight, the first issue with counseling, the biblical counseling, is just the definition of the word, which ties, as you said, if you believe in sufficiency, then let at least the word define the word, Okay. That would be a good place to start, and the ramifications of that are significant. The other problem, though, is the other word competent or able. And, and all of that means is that you need to be equipped through six months of equipped to counsel material, or you need to be certified through a special program where you've spent time learning how to do counseling. Okay? Or... 
you need, now that's, this, they would say this would be even for, quote, lay people. But, but in, the whole, in the whole competency world down here, you have the language. Not just the word counsel and counselee and counselor. It's a bunch of language. For example, the journal of biblical counseling. Well, it's a journal. That's academically, it's got to be good, right? This isn't just somebody's pastoral teaching. This is the journal. How about the word depression? We, we have taken the word depression and built an entire book after book after book about it. Well, where is that in the Bible? Like, people struggle to find that word in Scripture. Well, Elijah, wasn't he depressed? Well, he was despondent. He was, he, 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 you know, whatever you want to use. But, but we've taken a secular term, depression. Well, he must be manic, severe, mild, whatever. And Christians, good believers here, have written books. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on spiritual depression. Spurgeon, one of the best guys, I love Spurgeon. But Spurgeon listened to a secular psychologist and had a book on his shelf. And he was, I mean, there was some stuff going on with Spurgeon. If you read his stuff, that, that he really didn't hold the sufficiency as it related to real deep, discouragement and sorrow and and you think well how, how could it, this is pervasive it, it's sad and we all need to hold each other accountable towards sufficiency but so the language creeps in you see and then the process creeps in you know one-on-one in an office uh, groups, groups uh, accountability so yeah so you have you have all of this coming in. And so what happens when even the good guys, that I love their theology, when they try to put it up here, we, we, we don't have discernment. We, we're stuck with CR and grief share and, and, and if not celebrate recovery, good programs that are sound better than CR at the Village and Watermark and other places. Uh, the Stevens Ministry. And, and you've got all these... You have all of this stuff that's in the church, all of it influenced by the counseling world and by language. And pastors are just totally clueless because they, they're, they're like Jay Adams was. They, they just haven't been trained in it. That's a whole other department. They assume that they have special knowledge and wisdom in areas that they don't have. They don't believe in sufficiency, to your point. They've never stopped and asked these questions. And so what we're hoping with the material is at least get people to stop and ask questions. And now we'll get in, you know, we'll touch on some more of this stuff as we get into the body of Christ over the next three weeks. And I'll let you sort through it. Um, but I, I hope this is helpful. Steve, thank you very much.